Have you ever tried empowering every single person around you to be their best even when you're absent? Sounds like a lot to do, but there is a good thing. In this episode, you'll get a good overview about how to approach empowerment leadership by one of the most sought-after experts there is. My name is Christoph, and with me today is Claudia Krumanel, Capgemini Invents Managing Director for People and Organization Globally. Claudia and I have been tipping our feet in expectation. We are going to talk to Frances Frey, who is a professor at Harvard Business School. She recently served as Uber's first senior vice president of leadership and strategy to help the company navigate its very public crisis in leadership and culture. Frances regularly works with companies embarking on large-scale change in organizational transformation, including embracing diversity and inclusion as a lever for improved performance. Her TED Talk on the topic of building trust has locked over four and a half million views. Together with her wife, Anne Morris, a highly sought-after leadership coach and the executive founder of leadership of a leadership consortium, she recently published their new book titled Unleashed that we're going to talk about today. First and foremost, welcome. <laughs> welcome, Francis. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, b- before we dig deeper into the book, uh, can you give us a bit of background into your story? How does a student of mathematics and industrial engineering uh, decide to become an expert in leadership and culture that you are? Oh, it's a great question. Uh, so the mathematics was uh, theoretical. Industrial engineering was applied a little bit. Operations management was applied even more. Um, and so I was, you know, optimizing away and solving almost everything from within my office. And then I found that if it weren't for the pesky people, we could really design to perfection. <laughs> and so... Um, But the pesky people were getting in the way. And then I became deeply intrigued by humanity. And so that was a a late, I'm a late bloomer to that. Um, uh, And then I realized that people were led and they were led in by direct influence and by indirect influence. And then the rest uh, sort of just catapulted from there. Okay, so was that like an observation of a specific moment of some exemplary empowerment leadership, or is that a process? You know, I think that joining the faculty at the Harvard Business School, um, you can't get away from the people. Uh, I was surrounded by the best leadership scholars I could ever imagine. Um, And the students were quite keenly interested in the people. So I think that Harvard. Um, drew it out of me and also created the urgency for it. Okay. Is there any, when, when I ask you about empowerment leadership, is there any specific moment you'd, you'd say, this is a great example of how you should do it? Oh, yeah. So if I give you the, like, the greatest example today, I think it's being done by Microsoft. So Microsoft has really wonderful senior team, but it's, it's really three people on that senior team, uh, which is the CEO, the uh, head of people, and the CFO have really, and that's Satya, Kathleen, and Amy, they have really created, like transformed a company that was doing well um, and transformed it. They don't use the word empowerment leadership, but wow, does it coincide quite a lot. Um. You were just saying earlier um, that people are being led. That really matches very well what we observe and what we've worked um, or researched on over the last, I would say, almost 10 years. 
Because if you look at digital transformation, one of the core things that is missing or that seems to be the, the stumbling block is leadership. So in your experience working with these companies like um, Uber or observing companies like Microsoft, um, what is at the core of today's leadership challenges? Oh, that's a great question, too. Uh, I already love being here. Um, I, I think that the leadership in the digital world, so for, for digitally native companies, it's a little bit different. And so for digitally native companies, they really are differentiating on technology. They're digital first. They will have a lot of people that might go right from undergrad engineering into their organizations. And an MBA is quite an afterthought. Um, in, in going into these organizations, as is management training and leadership training. So I think one of the things that's most needed, at least, at least it's been needed in every organization I've gone into, is that they get individual contributors, they promote them very quickly to managers, they promote them very quickly to managers of managers because to keep up with the growth. Um, they're also like so super aware of tech debt and they're like, you know, are we accumulating it or not? I think that the silent, uh, but now urgent part is org debt and that, and a leadership deficit. Uh, and so that to me is one of the greatest challenges. The good news, um, the, uh, old school world knows how to do this super well. And so it's why I'm always encouraged when senior leaders from other industries join uh, these tech companies and when they embark on uh, leadership and management education. I will say by partnering with them on it, it's like when I partnered with Uber on it, the most eager learners I had ever come across. And because they're a tech company, we learned how to scale it in really innovative ways. So we were teaching 2,500 people at a time in a live interactions with people around the world uh, in quite stunning ways. So when they bring their innovative mindsets and technological mindsets to it, it also makes education for everyone better. Hmm. It, it sounds a little bit like listening, absolute great observation. I've never really thought about it that, um, th that there's a probably systemic difference between the, the those bo companies born digital and the others that are trying to be more digital. So we practically would need to swap some of the leaderships more in a more structured way between these companies to bring, let's say, the leadership, the management kind of culture from I don't want to say traditional companies because that's not the right word, but these these companies that are that that have them been there for a long while and then these companies with a more innovative tech mindset. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, my, so my dream is because you can have you can have executives swap, but my dream is to uh, have organizations form consortiums and where they actually get to borrow leaders across. It will be great for the hosting organizations. It will be great for the other organizations. Um, and you could do it in a really targeted way. It would be enormously developmental for the people that went back and forth. So I see in my mind's eye a beautiful consortium model to do precisely what you just suggested. Uh, when we look at like not swapping people, building these consortiums, uh, we, we need to find a way to build relationships, right? To to have people learn from each other. And uh, when looking at your leadership philosophy, understand that uh, trust is a foundation uh, from your point of view. Um, how would I as a leader understand or know that I need to put some work into developing trust? 
Oh, great. Uh, gosh, I'll try to stop saying, oh, great question at the beginning of each one. <laughs> but it's hard. It's instinctual. Um, so I, what I just ask you to do is to uh, reflect on your own personal experience or on your group's experience or on your company's experience. And can you conjure recent examples where you didn't earn as much trust as you wanted? If you can't, you don't have a trust problem. But if you're like, oh my gosh, so when I got to Uber, there were trust breakdowns with the regulators, there were trust breakdowns with the riders, with the drivers, with the partners. Like there were, people didn't have to conjure in their mind's eye for long. Um, but if you, so if trust is not um, bringing itself to the center that, oh my gosh, we keep having to relitigate things, uh, the qual it's slow, the quality is low. Trust is for sure a culprit in that. But if it's not a culprit, then you get to go to level two. Mm -hmm. Is there, are there leaders that trust too much? Is there the opposite way? No. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, huh? I can, I can double click if you want. You asked me a yes, no question. No, no, so. no, no, no. I, I know, I know that it's, it's a very straightforward, not even doubting answer. So that's really, that's really good. Yeah. Because um, I'll give you the double click on it. Yeah. Whether or not you trust me is my obligation. Whether or not I trust you is your obligation. So I can't earn too much trust. Right. It's more like what you do with it as, as the recipient of the trust. Yes. And you can do things that enhance trust or you can do things that make that trust fleeting. Mm -hmm. So um, how would you recommend that teams build that trust in a more structured way? So the the great breakthrough that we had was when we realized that trust isn't a monolithic thing, or at least it can be um, split up into its three component parts that are collectively exhaustive, and each one is super actionable. So when we realized that trust had three component parts, and that it's the language we use is authenticity, logic, and empathy, but it's you will lose trust in me very quickly if you sense I'm saying something I don't believe. If you sense that I'm like self-contradictory and it just doesn't feel like a solid plan, or if you sense that it's all about me, any of those three occur, your uh, likelihood of trusting me plummets. And so what, you, what we want to do is make sure that we have like super good lenses on our glasses so we can identify which one is the culprit in any different given context. And then we have super straightforward ways of overcoming each of them. Okay. Um, I want to come back to that, that idea of um, or the difference between organizations of how much trust they have as an organization. Because when I look at some of the clients that we work with, um, I would say organizational structures are not necessarily built in a way that trust is enhanced. So what would you recommend companies with a lot of history or so say for coming from a manufacturing um, uh, sector, how would they start their journey? Yeah. So, and I'm, uh, I will reveal that I'm not an organizational structure scholar uh, by saying I have seen like every different type of organizational structure work. And I have seen those same types of organi organizational structure not work. So in my mind, organizational structure is not a big driver of trust. That's just in my observation and my experience. So, but the way in which we handle the past is an enormous driver, regardless of 
organizational structure. So for example, for us to have successful change, it requires three things. We have to honor the past. We need a clear and compelling change mandate, and we need a rigorous and optimistic way forward. Anytime I see a change initiative fail, I can trace it back to one of those three phases, uh, regardless of organizational structure. So when you try to start that journey, and I'm sure you can collect the first successes, um, finding ways to to honor what's been in the past and then finding new new ways of working. Now, um, those most often happen at some side, at some local team, I I guess. How would you try and use that to scale that journey uh, globally to to kind of get this journey on for the whole organization? Yeah, and I, I see it most done in an organization level. So, you know, COVID, a clear and compelling change mandate for practically every company in the world. You know, we're now in, as my colleague Sadal Neely beautifully says, a remote work revolution. Um, and so that's a clear and compelling change mandate. We have to honor the past. We have to honor what came before us. We can't just throw it out. We have to wring out all the learning. We, the, but COVID gives us, why do we have to change now? And then it's our job to come up with a super optimistic way forward. It can't be a, a dreadful staring at Zoom <laughs> uh, future. It, we really have to be rigorous in our experimentation and optimistic in what will uh, in what will be accomplished. So I I often see it at societal level because it's external shocks that almost well that probably account for seventy five percent of the clear and compelling mandate. You know the equivalent of Amazon all of a sudden becoming a competitor <laughs> or um, I just I just read that Kodak is now going to be in pharmaceuticals. I have no idea if Kodak is going to be a good um, competitor in that or not, but that's like a change, an unexpected change in the competitive landscape for pharmaceuticals. Absolutely. I read the same thing. It's a it's a really transformative idea to reboost their business. They were presumed they were presumed dead already and now they're kind of reshifting their focus. I mean I so just for my I found it amongst the most curious headlines and I wasn't sure that it wasn't a spoof. <laughs> I read the same thing, so um either we read the same spoof or it's, it's actually true. So. Yeah, okay, great. <laughs> Uh, a bit away, no, no, not, not necessarily, but I want to um, go in a direction of a different direction a little bit. Um, most teams have, um, or most organizations have some kind of diversity quota or whatever they're using. Um, it, it's, it's different by geography, but um, in generally, most organizations struggle to achieve truly diverse teams. Um, so why do you think organizations fail to meet these targets, the diversity and inclusion goals they set? And why is it so hard to, to establish teams and leadership that drives this? Uh, so I first want to say that every time we've partnered with an organization to do it, they've fully achieved it. So it's possible to do it. Uh, I'll tell you what we see as the obstacles. One is a lot of the things you have to do are counter instinctual. 
So if you trust your super well-intentioned instincts, it might not work. And so you need to be handed the secret memos, <laughs> the secret memos of trust your instincts here. Oops, not here. And I'll, I'll give you some examples of that. So that's the first thing. The second thing to realize uh, is that meaningful change in my observation only happens quickly. So when we make diversity and inclusion an urgent goal, and that is if somebody has a five or 10 year plan to change, I just, I wish them well. And I honestly tell them maybe don't bother um, because you can do it super quickly as long as it's the number one priority. But if you let it become the number one priority, say now, and then it goes to a lower priority and then it comes back up and it goes down, you risk cynicism for sending mixed messages into the organization. So if organizations take this galvanizing moment to do it, I believe that um, it won't be difficult to do. Uh, the reason we haven't done it in the past is one, there are some counterinstinctual things. And two, we have like amazing operational can-do insight. And if this thing doesn't work, we try another and we pivot and we pivot. And when we get to things like gender and race, we we stand down sometimes on that super rigorous operations root cause analysis mindset. And if we would simply bring that to bear, it would help a lot. So I'll give you an example. A lot of people in their efforts to be more diverse have used something called balanced slates. And I'm sure you know what they, they are for the listeners out there. They may as well, but it's like, oh, let's make sure that we interview a diverse slate of candidates. And they're doing that as part of their effort to achieve a more diverse workforce. Well, balanced slates have been used for a long time and they rarely work. But we're not, we're still giving ourselves a participation award. We're still giving ourselves an effort award. Whereas if we treated this like anything else, we were like, golly, we've used balance slates. Does it lead to a more diverse work? If it does, double down. If it doesn't, let's try the next thing. All right. When, when you, when you work with WeWork uh, on their diversity and inclusion, how did you like, where, did you find the, the best approach? Yeah, super. Uh, I've replaced great question with super. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, they were looking specifically at gender uh, and their organization was 50% women, but the senior levels of the organization were not. Um, and the former CEO and the uh the chief, uh, the chief legal officer, the general counsel, um, were like, look, there's no reason that we should not have 50% women in the senior levels, but we don't know how to attract and retain them. And so just, so they asked for help in that. And so we piloted it in one unit within the organization and achieved it very quickly. And then some other things happened in the organization um, that we weren't able to scale it throughout. But here was the big thing. If you're recruiting, if you have typically been awesome at attracting and retaining a singular profile, and that was pretty much the case at WeWork, what you want to acknowledge then is that all of your practices are awesome for that singular profile. And if you want more of that profile, double down on what you're doing. But be honest, if it, those processes are not reliably producing different profiles, 
please don't port them over. You have to use different processes. So that's the first level. It's just that level of acknowledgement. In their case, they were recruiting people that everyone was one degree of separation from. And so what we learned is how to attract and retain people that they didn't already know who happened to be women. And all of the women that came in were exceptional. And neither I nor we were had any prior relationships with these women. And that was what was important. I think it's also important that companies learn how to do this themselves. If you're going to use a search firm and things like that, I don't think you should use a search firm to learn. It's like you don't outsource a problem. <laughs> you once you once it's well understood, you can partner with someone. Um, so I think that it, what we did is did it ourselves, um, so we could learn the processes of where are awesome women. How do we get them to yes <laughs> when they get here? How do we make sure they get early traction? How do we make sure when they're awesome, they're going to get calls? How do we earn the right to keep them here? Right. Um, is that also to do with creating a feeling of belongingness on the team? What factor does this yes. play? Yeah, it's so good. Um, and I love Scooby Snacks, so you can just see. I, <laughs> I just do it. Um, so what we have found is that in the need for like bringing diverse talent in is one thing. Thrive, having the diverse talent thrive and having everyone else thrive even more than they were, that's the next level. We call that inclusion. And actually, the urgent thing I would encourage companies to do today, even before you're able to attract and retain diverse talent, is make progress on being inclusive of everyone within your organization. And what we have found is that there are four progressive stages of inclusion it's, are people, do they feel physically and emotionally safe? Do they feel welcomed? Do they feel celebrated? Do they feel cherished? Here's what we find. There is enormous variation in the organization today or where people are along what we call the inclusion dial. And there are demographic tendencies associated with it. So I would work on being inclusive of all of the magnificent variety that you have in your organizations today. That will also help you once you uh, learn how to attract and retain or, or attract and get to yes, um, awesome, for example, women or people of color, you'll also be much more likely to uh, be an organization that's worthy of them uh, when you have learned how to be inclusive. Right. And now, uh, can you just share an example of how, how can I, as a leader, try and create that? during the day yeah. in a specific situation just to make it tangible. Beautiful. Yeah. So, you know, I think COVID is a really good presenting example. Um, people feel, you know, people's physical and emotional safety are at risk. Some people are. Um, it, we don't wear it on our sleeves. So when you are working with your team remotely, you might not know who's feeling physically and emotionally safe. So you probably have a whole bunch of variety just on your team. I um, always advise doing a, an anonymous poll. I 
I happen to use Zoom a lot. Um, the polls are super easy to do and anonymous. And I just show the inclusion dial and ask everyone, how have you felt this week? And have them score from a zero to four um, on it. It's usually stunning to each person how much variety they are in the distribution because they each suppose that how they're feeling is how everyone else is feeling. If you don't have the ability to do that and you're just going to assume, I'd say 25% of your organization um, feels not safe, not physically and emotionally safe, or safety is the only thing they feel. They don't feel welcomed on top of that. So I just want you to then, every meeting you go into, think, golly, there's a quarter of the people that if I keep doing what I've been doing, they don't feel emotionally safe enough to speak up. They don't feel emotionally safe enough to bring the best version of themselves forward. Once you know that, you can start looking for the microways in your context. So I can, it's easier for me to tell you things to not do. You know, if we're deciding which strategic direction to go in, and the first person who speaks is going to be someone who's super comfortable speaking, which chances are then they're going to be person who's in the majority or in the powerful, whatever, however power is distributed in your organization. And they're going to say, I think we should do A. Mm. Chances are the next person who speaks is going to say, I agree. I think we should do A. And the third person says, definitely A, for this additional reason. At that point, you've just silenced everyone else. So it's much better after the first person says A, and that's fine. Then as the person who's running the meeting, say, awesome, who can articulate a different viewpoint? Seek and celebrate difference early and often. That's beautifully simple. Sounds easy enough. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's what we tried to do with our book. It is a book of secret memos. And uh, we learned a lesson from uh, two senior colleagues that when we were asking, they were on their like 33rd draft of a paper. (laughs) It was just like, I, I was just, I know, I was like, wow. And so the question came up, how do you know when you're done? And they said, they said, when it becomes obvious. I think simplicity is on the other side of understanding things deeply. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, from your experience, can you just share maybe an impressive result you've seen happening uh, had only been possible because the leader had nurtured that feeling of belonging? Um, Yeah, I would say that the cultural turnaround at Riot Games is has been quite stunning to write, uh, to, to, uh, um, observe and, and have to be able to play a small part in. And Nicolo Laurent, the CEO, uh, just published his thoughts on the reflection. Uh, they went from an organization that woke up one day to headlines from a newspaper that totally shocked them about things that were going wrong in the organization that they were horrified to learn about. And then they set out to, um, address them. And it's now, I mean, the strides it has made towards inclusion. And I think it's mostly just been towards inclusion. So the company's name is Riot Games, but it had only had one game. The really precise name would have been Riot Game. Well, since they, and they had other games in development for years. It's not a coincidence that they are now Riot Games their second game has been completed. Their third game is almost completed. And these are beautiful, magnificent successes. So I would say that that's those successes I personally attribute to their uh, journey towards a more inclusive environment. 
So maybe to, to make a bit of a twist on the topic now, um, you, you shared the idea of uh, ambassadors of other people's awesomeness in the book. Um, so as not everyone may just read your, have you read your book yet, maybe can you just explain a bit what's the idea behind this? Where did you first experience the idea and, and why is it so powerful for you? Yeah, so the, so the definition of leadership that we propose is that leadership is about making other people better as a result of our presence that lasts into our absence. But leadership is not about us. In fact, chapter one is it's not about you. So my, you can judge my performance as a leader on how much other people improve. So we then set out to what are the best, fastest, most impactful ways to help other people improve. And There's a lot of things you can do, but one of them is to see the possibility and to interact with the best version of them, and that will set really high standards for them. And so I'm an ambassador of other people's awesomeness. Like when a junior faculty member joins Harvard Business School, I want to make sure that they're successful. And I am going to do everything I can so that they can shine. It's really removing all of the pebbles that could become boulders, hopefully proactively without them even knowing it. Um, and, and that means that I'm going to be, and you know, not again, not telling them, but a super big advocate for them, helping them, helping other people learn what's great about them, really opening as many doors as possible. Again, behind the scenes, I hope, so that their their awesomeness is just skyrocketing. And organizations that have leaders that do that, oh my gosh, their performance improvement slope is just, you know, dwarfs the, oh, we're going to be a sink or swim. And I don't even want to get started on sink or swim, but it's one of the sentences that makes me most crazy because there's no such thing. All of the swimmers we have out there, they just received informal swimming lessons. We just weren't formal about it. So we're having people that are not like a sink and we're informally helping all the swimmers. Makes my head spin. Right. That's a nice, nice way to put it, I think. I never heard that. Um, now, you've, you've put a lot of focus on the leader's absence. Um Yes. And you put a quite bit of work into it and a whole lot of pages in the book. Um, what is it that makes it so important to you? Yeah. So I find it to be, imagine if all of us were great leaders in our presence, but after we left, things fell apart. I think historically that has made people feel really good. <laughs> They're like, oh, look, you can like do a fixed effect analysis on me and I'm statistically significant, my presence. I mattered. Um, and that just from a human perspective and from a performance perspective, my operations mind just goes crazy because it's just inconsistent ebbing and flowing. So it's much better if you can help people get better and train them to be better so that you can move on in the safety and comfort of knowing they're going to thrive in your absence. And we would see some leaders would do things that would make their teams super reliant on them. And other people would do things that were making themselves obsolete as quickly as possible. The latter 
yielded much greater performance. So it really is like the most enduring part of leadership. We also found that there are like only two things you can do in your absence. So if, if you're in another geography from me and I'm, I'm leading you, but I'm not like with you, I'm not by your side most of the time. How are you going to know what the right thing to do is? We really only have two levers, culture and strategy. So we spend a lot of time on, in the book describing how culture and strategy guide discretionary behavior. Um, everyone kind of knows what culture means and everyone kind of knows what strategy means, but we really try to give them rigorous definitions to super nuanced operational detail because we find that that's where you get the really great improvement. Can you give us an example? You mentioned um, there's different behaviors. Do you have um, uh, an example for a behavior that is um, helping teams grow in absence or helping teams to flourish by themselves and maybe also the opposite? So what's kind of the worst thing you can do? Yeah. So I'll do it on the culture side first. So cultural values, and I find that you can, you know, there's some organizations that have culture values on the wall, but you would never anthropologically know it. And then there are some organizations, the cultural values on the wall are also etched into the souls of the employees. And it will manifest that when they make comments on Slack, it'll be like hashtag cultural value one. Like it's really a cultural value driven organization. So in those organizations, the values are just that we live by them. That's driving discretionary behavior. It's good. It also can become bad. And that's particularly true when those really awesomely um, designed cultural values become weaponized. And I'll give you an example of that. One of my favorite examples is a cultural value that says default to trust. And there are many organizations that have it, many digitally native organizations that have that cultural value. And it's awesome. If we give each other the benefit of the doubt, we better things will happen. It, it has also become weaponized at quite a large number of those companies. And by weaponized, instead of that altruistic, let's give each other the benefit of the doubt, in practice, if I don't like what you're saying, I might say to you, default to trust and just do it my way. That is not at all its intention, but that's how it has begun to be used. And as soon as a cultural value becomes weaponized, that too is going to guide discretionary behavior. And what we have learned is you have to then redo the, that and probably the set of cultural values, which can be a really great process. Um, but it comes from the weaponization of beautifully designed cultural values. Hmm. A, a good example of meant well, but executed very differently. Yeah. And I, you know, it executed really well in the beginning and then something happened and people started using it for selfish reasons as opposed to for making others better reasons. So how do I know, know whether my team is in good shape for my absence or me leading in absence? Um, uh, take more vacations <laughs> and observe their performance. <laughs> Do you see any correlation between the team's preparedness for the leader's absence and, let's say, morale and productivity uh, of yes. a remote and mobile workforce? Yes. Um, 
the teams that are, there's a high correlation between preparedness and engagement and satisfaction and um, feeling like you're learning new things. So everything works in the right direction. So you can, you can see why it was such a wonder to us that people weren't preparing people for their absence. And yet when you do prepare people for their absence, everything goes up. Uh, can you also share an example of, let's say, something that happened that you say was absolutely magnificent uh, in the leader's absence? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I look at the, you know, we were chatting about this before, but we're now at HBS where we are teaching remotely. Uh, so we all knew how to teach in the in the HBS classrooms, which the school is designed for the pitch of the stairs and the curvature of the room so that, you know, that everyone can see each other. It's uh, now we go to remote. Um, we are like the amount of innovation that is occurring in the absence of the school's leadership is breathtaking and it's all student centric. And I think that is the leadership has prepared the faculty to do this even in their absence. There is no way the school could come up with a top-down solution to this that would be better than people experimenting in the absence of the central administration. And what the school is wisely doing is permitting, you know, is encouraging that. And then we'll learn some best practices. But what they're not doing is saying, this is how it should be done, because that would neither be preparing us for uh, their absence, nor would it achieve all that much. And it requires a lot of, uh, forgive my French, a lot of balls to do that, right? It's stepping <laughs> way into the unknown, right? I didn't realize that was a French term. Um, <laughs> and there's one called Maniac, which is very French. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, next twist. Uh, what is the most unexpected feedback you've gotten for Unleashed so far? Um, it People tell us that it feels like it was written for this moment. This COVID, Black Lives Matter, an awakened consciousness. And we, of course, completed it before these things. And... Um, And so that feels, and I read it. So one of the things I do is I reread the book a lot. Um, and, uh, it really does feel of this moment. And I try to, and part of that is just, you know, luck. Um, but it's, that is the most like, like, how did you get a book out so quickly <laughs> while all of this was going on? And we didn't write it now. We wrote it earlier. <laughs> very good feedback if yeah. you if you, if you um, wanted to recommend one thing to our listeners to take away to their daily practices what would that be it's not about you and so everything you can do stop thinking about your own performance and thinking about creating the conditions for others to thrive and so when you walk into the room you're the least interesting person in the room And other people's awesomeness is the most important, is the most interesting thing in the room. If you just change that frame, I believe beautiful things will happen. Uh, so th thank you. Uh, we're going to 
wrap this up with five very quick and simple questions. It's either or questions, and you just uh, spit it out. What what comes to your head first? Is that right? So you're you're gonna do a which would you rather? Uh, yeah, basically, basically, yes. <laughs> okay, all right, let's go, let's go. <laughs> uh, coffee or orange juice? Coffee. Analyze or act? Act. Travel or stay at home? Stay at home. All right. If you do travel, when we're allowed and safe again to do so, plane or train? Plane. All right. And then the last, early bird or slugger bed? Well, slugger bed is such a, you know, late nighter, as you frame, you know, in a derogatory way, but slugger bed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you could say night owl. That would be probably night cool. owl. Night owl. All right. <laughs> Francis, thank you for taking the time. I hope it's been worth your while and uh, having a bit of fun in the end of it with us. Yeah, it, it's such a this was such a pleasurable conversation. Um, so anytime you want to chat again, just let me know. It would be it would be an absolute delight. Absolutely. We'll take you back on that. <laughs> so thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you, Francis, very much for this lovely conversation. Um, if you're interested in more, follow us on our social media sites. Um, me or Christoph personally on LinkedIn um, and get in touch with us if you are interested in a deeper conversation. And to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or any other site, uh, go to the description. You'll find the links in there, and you can subscribe to our podcast on your preferred platform, where, whatever it is. <laughs>